0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Alex Golub, and I'll be the host of the channel. Today, we're talking to Don Kulik, who is the author of A Death in the Rainforest, How a Language and a Way of Life Came to an End in Papua New Guinea. It's a a very poignant book. It's very funny. It is also very sad, and it's really uh, sort of unusual and interesting and worthwhile because it's so clearly written. And it moves at such a brisk pace. It would, it'd be great to teach for undergraduate courses, or frankly, just to take to the beach, or give to your relatives, or whatever you want to do. So it's really, it's really accessible. That's one of the things I liked uh, most about it. Don is uh, the, let me see here. He is the distinguished university professor of anthropology at Uppsala University in Sweden. And I am an undistinguished professor of anthropology here in Hawaii. So the, the time difference is killing us. It's eight in the morning for me. It's eight p.m. for him. So if you hear me slurping coffee, that's that's what that is. Don, thanks so much for for being on the podcast.
1: Or if you hear me, thank <laughs> you. If you hear me slurping wine, I wish we could um, switch that's places. Of course. Yes, yes. But thank you very much for having me. It's a great honor.
0: Thank you. One of the first things that we like to ask people on this podcast is how did you come to write this book? And sort of what was your uh, biographical story that would lead you up to writing it?
1: Well, as I write in the book, I started doing fieldwork in Papua New Guinea in 1985. So I've been doing fieldwork there for more than 30 years. I haven't been there the whole time. Um, I've spent a total of about three years in the village and I wanted I, the last lar- longer period of time I spent in the village was in 2014. And I decided at that point that I needed to write a book about what had happened in the village since I wrote my last book about the village, which was published, I think, in 19. 19- 90 1992 I think and that was the result of my doctoral field work and the, that book was about language shift in the village it has an incredibly boring title it's called language shift and cultural reproduction um, and uh, you know that was my doctoral thesis it was a very scholarly very academic book I still think it's a very good book I think I encourage people to read it and I actually sign it to my students but it's a it's an academic it's a scholarly book and when I came to think, what am I going to do this time? I very much did not want to just do a volume two of the book I had written uh, 25 years previously. And when I sat down to write it, I didn't know what kind of book I was going to write. Um, I I knew that I didn't want it to be, be an academic book in the sense of my first book and several books I've written since then, but I didn't really know what it was going to be. And so I just sat down and I did what I advise all of my graduate students to do, which is basically just sit and write. And it turned out that I was writing small sort of short stories. And they were about three to 5,000 words each. And I started just writing them. And they collected and grew organically into the book that became A Death in the Rainforest.
0: Mm. And this book is connected with... Uh grammar of Tayyip, which is the language that people speak in, Gapun, which is that how I pronounce it? The village where you... Gapun. Gapun. Gapun, Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Yes, it's connected connected in the sense that both of them came to fruition in this year. So the grammar um, that I had been working on since 1985, basically, um was finally published um this year. So that it, it represents the end of an era for me. I have basically done what I set out to do, which was to document the language, which of course is dying. Um, a death in the rainforest refers to several things, but one of the things it refers to is the language tie-up, which these days is only spoken by about 40 people. Um, and the the one of one of the one of the things that I wanted to do is documented, because nobody else is going to document it. And if I had not done this, it would really be the proverbial tree in the forest falling and no one hearing it. So I'm very proud of the fact that I documented it. And that comes with this book, which sort of documents my the end of my field fieldwork um, in Gapun after 30 years.
0: And I think most people who read your work would not think of you as someone who is a, a Papua New Guinea expert, right? In between, you've done a lot of other things. You've done field work in Brazil. You have a couple of edited volumes. Can you tell me a little bit about the interregnum between the the first book and then these most recent books?
1: Well, the, the, I, I had planned on becoming a you know, Papua New Guineaist, as as it were. Um, and when I finished my first book, I went back to Papua New Guinea as a I was a a, a, um, a postdoctoral fellow at the Australian National University in the Department of Linguistics. So I went back to Gapwin to actually write the grammar, and this was in 1992. And then at that point, I was attacked in the village, you know, in and I document this in this new book. I, I discuss what happened there. Um, at that point in Papua New Guinea, it was very, very violent. Many anthropologists, as you know, left the country around that time because the, the, the law and order situation basically just got out of hand. And I left the country, it turned out, for 15 years. I never thought I would go back, actually, um, because the, the events that, I, that happened were very, very tragic. And as I say, I write about them in this in this new book. But I and in the meantime, I you know, I found another field site. I found the field site of Brazil. I worked with transgender prostitutes. I wrote a book about them. Um, and I also wrote some I wrote a book together with Deborah Cameron, the feminist linguist called Language and Sexuality. So I got I got some other interests and I and I, you know, I did other stuff. But then in two thousand and six I got a letter from one of the villagers. Uh, quite unexpectedly, and this is also something that I read about in the book. It just came out of the blue, and the villagers asked me to come back. And I thought, well, I'll go and see. I mean, I really missed them. I didn't miss the environment because it's not a pleasant place. It's in the middle of a swamp. It's just pretty dire. But I missed, you know, I missed the people. And so I went back, and I, I discovered that it would. I, I I thought it would be okay to work there. So I went back for almost a year in two thousand and nine. And that was really the point at which I realized I needed to write another book about these people. I needed to write about them. That's where I also gathered a huge amount of material on the language, which I then later came to write. Together with a, a linguist, uh, Andrew, Angela Terrell, we, we completed the grammar of, of tie-up. So between, I as I said, I never really planned to go back to Papua New Guinea, but it was always with me, as I think it is with anyone who really has ever lived in the country for any length of time. It gets to you. It's very it's 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 a great place you like the people, the people are funny, the people are outrageous, the people are um you know they make you laugh and i I like that about people so i I always wanted to go back, I never thought I could, and then when I realized I could go back, I went back and in between two thousand and nine. And when I wrote this book, I also did another period of fieldwork in Denmark and Sweden about people with disabilities. So I've done a lot of different things. Um, but Papua New Guinea has always been something that I've you know, longed for and wanted to, to to go back to and return to.
0: Yeah. As some of the listeners on this channel will know, I also do fieldwork in Papua New Guinea and have connection to a community there. Um and a lot of the things that you talk about in the book, I think readers will have a sense that they were pretty important. You, you um, if you don't mind, maybe describing the uh, the attack that you went through. Is that okay if I ask you to do that right now? It's in print. I don't know whether it's good well, to talk certainly. about in person.
1: Certainly. I mean, it might ruin something. I mean, <laughs> I'm thinking right. keeping the suspense spoiler, up for people who spoiler have it alert. Read. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Yeah, well, basically, um, this was in 1992, and the rumor had been spread in the air. And We should, first of all, say that this village where I work, Gapun, it's very far off the beaten track. It takes a long time to get there. It's very difficult to get to, and it's very difficult to get out of. You have to go there by, well, there's various ways of getting there, but you have to go in a canoe. You have to go through a mangrove lagoon. You have to go down a creek for for about half an hour. Then you have to walk directly into the rainforest for an hour and it's a very it's a it's a village the nearest village is a two hour walk away and it's always been quite isolated there's no roads um you know very little money enters this village it's a it's a backwater it's a total backwater mm. so when I was there during the fifteen months where I did my doctoral research in nineteen eighty six and eighty seven Nothing happened. I felt very safe. The villagers, you know, it was, it, I felt very safe. When I went back in 1992, apparently a rumor started very quickly that I had 40,000 Australian dollars with me. And that was completely untrue. Of course, what would I do with $40,000 in the middle of the rainforest? but the rumor started and you know in a place like this there are no other sources of information except rumor there's no newspapers there was no internet there still is no internet there's no telephones there's nothing there's rumor and there's the no rumor,
0: s- there's no mobile phones
1: the, the these days the villagers they well they have they have there's two mobile phones in the village but there's no network so they can't mm. connect so the actual oh physical the physical object exists but the network doesn't exist um, but it, this is in 1992, so nothing existed then, and right. so the rumors the rumors spread that I had forty thousand dollars, and five men from from villages um, outside of Gapun came in one night to to get the money, to take the money, and they uh, they attacked me. Um, and, I mean, they, they, in the middle of the night, they climbed up into my house, they put a gun in my face, and asked me and told me to give them the money which of course I had no clue what they were talking about. And I, you know, I just rifled through my, my patrol box looking for anything I could give them. But the tragic part was that when they, they pushed me out onto the veranda and I don't know what they intended to do with me, I still don't know. But a, a village man ran past in the middle of the night. He was wearing white trousers. They shined the flashlight on him and they shot him in the back and they killed him. Mm. And that was, a, that, was a, that was a devastating, devastating tragedy um and that caused me to leave the village you know partly out of you know fear for my own safety because i realized that they'd come for me but also out of the realization that i was putting the villagers the poor villagers were in danger because i was in the village because they didn't come for them they came for me so that caused me to basically abandon my research and i dropped it i basically just dropped it i thought i'm not ever going to do the grammar i'm not going to write anything more about these people i'm just done which was very tragic. I mean, it was a, it was a, I, I lamented it for, for a long, long time, but I thought I can't go back, partly because I'm putting them in danger and also because I'm putting myself in danger. Um, and so that was what changed when I got the letter in 2006, which was nearly 15 years later. And I realized that they you know, they hadn't forgotten me and they wanted me to come back, which was very, I, I thought, wow, this is amazing. So I, yeah, I went back. Um, And I, yeah, and I. There were several incidences, incidents after that that also were violent, which I also describe in the book. So this is a, you know, this it was kind of a touch and go place here. And I think that this area in the CPIC, I don't really know because you know I know people who work in other parts of the country and they don't encounter the kind of violence that I've pretty I've encountered pretty much since that trip in 1992. Every single time I go back. And I don't, I mean, again, Papua New Guinea is a big country. It has a lot of different dynamics, a lot of different people, a lot of different things going on in different places. So I can never speak, and I never do speak for Papua New Guinea as a country. But in the area that I know best, it's, it's pretty bad still. I remember when um,
0: this first happened, I think you published an article in Anthropology Today or something like
1: that. That's right. Yes. Because I was, I was concerned, That people didn't, I didn't know anything about the violence going on there, and I was doing field work there. And I thought, would I want to send a, a graduate student to a place where something like this happened to an anthropologist? And I thought, no, I wouldn't. But how am I supposed to tell people about it unless I tell people about it, as it were? So, yes, I published an article about it de- describing what happened.
0: Yeah, I remember that um, because I and some other people were planning to do field work in, in Melanesia, Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands. And um, it was right about the time that that article came out. And it really made us think about whether we wanted to go there or not and uh, what we would have to deal with when we went. Um, but I went anyway. So, and.
1: But that's good. I mean, it's good. But it's good that you knew about it. It's good that you thought about it. Because when I went to the field, I knew nothing. I hadn't thought about this at all. It never had occurred to me that something like this could ever happen. So if you even thought about it for five minutes and considered it, that's, I think, a victory for, for, for I mean, it's, it's it's something good that came out of it. Absolutely.
0: This. I think it was really good that you wrote it. And I know today there's lots of graduate students out there who um, say that they need to be Told by their supervisors what the potential risks are, and they feel that in the past anthropology has has not done a good enough job of explaining to its students, you know, what field work involves. So, uh, yeah,
1: I agree. And I mean, one of you know, one of the things that happened when I came back and started telling people about it is, for the most part, everybody, all of my colleagues, were very supportive. Um, but but a few people either said right out loud or intimated that somehow it was my fault. I did something that caused it to happen, and that—that that I thought was 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 unacceptable. And I also reflected on the fact that that reaction was only possible in the context of a discipline that had no means of dealing with these kinds of yeah. issues. And that realization actually led to the uh, to, to the conceptualization of a book that I published together with Margaret Wilson, called "Taboo" about sex in the field. Because an anthropologist's experience of sexuality, of of having sex or not having sex in the field. Because I realized that if a woman were to get raped in the field, if an anthropologist, a female anthropologist would get raped in the field, she would likely, certainly at that point in the early 1990s, be subject to the same kind of response. It's like, well, what did you Mm. do? That was not professional of you. That must be your fault. And I thought, this is outrageous. Um, and so that was the, that experience in 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 Gepner being attacked and having some people, you know, sort of cast aspersions on my professionalism because I was attacked. It made me think of other other issues, for example, sexual violence in the village, and that's or in in in, in field during field work, and that's one of the that was one of the impetuses to that book, the taboo book.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like a lot of your interest in in reflexivity and discussing topics that might be seen. Kind of out of bounds. It, maybe it's rooted in you know your life and your personality and everything, but also particularly in your your field work in PNG.
1: Exactly, it is. It is a lot of a lot of it came because again, you know, I mean, how old was I? I was what twenty four years old. I didn't nobody nobody in the department that I worked in the University of Stockholm had ever been to Papua New Guinea. No, I got no advice about Papua. I went there because I wanted to go um and you know i was there and and i had no idea i was naive i was stupid and i you know i i don't think that you should stop people from being naive and stupid but i wish that i had been a bit of, a bit better informed about the potential of you know, any kind of violence happening, because I just had no idea. I guess I thought that as an anthropologist, one had a kind of a force field around one that, that mm. you know, somehow magically protected one from these sorts of things. But I was sorely mistaken.
0: Can I ask, how did you decide to go to Papua New Guinea at all? You said you wanted to go. How does one hear about Kapun? Kapun and I mean, how, how does that happen if you're living in Sweden?
1: Well, I, you know, I grew up in the United States. So I I grew up in the United States and I moved to Sweden when I was 19 years old. I went as an exchange student and I liked it and I stayed, um, basically. And that's where I got my university education. I grew up with National Geographics. Um, It was the only piece of literature in my household, National Geographics. And I was, I mean, it's probably one of the reasons I became an anthropologist. I was fascinated by people like Papua New Guineans. And people like Papua New Guineans were very exotic. So I had my eye out for that kind of exoticism. But I also was very interested in languages. So, you know, when I moved to Sweden, I learned Swedish. I had spoken Russian. I learned Russian. Very quickly, I was speaking French. I, I, you know, I, I, I'm quite good at languages, and I learn them quickly. I also forget them quickly, but I learned them very mm-hmm. quickly. And I was always interested in languages. And I thought to myself, and I realized, I learned at some point that Papua New Guinea, the the, the nation of Papua New Guinea, which consists of about, what is it, eight to nine million people these yeah. days. At that point, I think it was maybe seven, between seven and eight million people there there are spoken the largest number of distinct languages anywhere in the world and that i thought wow that's that's so cool um and at that point, I think at some point I, I read Nancy Dorian's book called Language Death," probably as one of my as, you know in one of my linguistics classes, and I thought this is such an interesting phenomenon. How does a language die? I mean, we know how languages are born, we know about pigeons and we know about creoles, we know how children learn language I mean we don't know everything, but we know a lot and but this, this whole thing about how does a language die I, I found it compelling for some unknowable reason, and I reasoned that in a place like Papua New Guinea, where there's a lot of small languages, because again, linguists estimated have estimated that I think about thirty percent of the languages spoken in Papua New Guinea are spoken by five hundred people or less, and these are distinct languages. They're not dialects. They're not. You know, they're not varieties. They're distinct languages. And I thought, well, something must be going on there, which gave me a reason to go to Papua New Guinea. And the way I found Gapun, as I, as I write in the beginning of the book, is I went basically knocked on the door of a linguist at the Australian National University who had who had himself paddled a canoe through the lower Sepik, and who basically got word lists from different people and spent a couple spent about a decade classifying the languages on the basis of those words lists. And I went to him and I said, you know, I want to do I want to see how a language dies, but I know nothing about Papua New Guinea. I don't really know a lot. Can you help me? And he was delighted to help me. He said, Well, you know, why he gave me two places to go, actually. One was Gapu, and that was the first place I went. And then he gave me a place in the West Sepik province, which was, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles away, a completely unrelated group of people speaking a completely unrelated language, which I also went to for a month and did a reconnaissance, sort of stayed there for a month. And you know, I ended up thinking, well, Gapun, I, I like the people there better. They were just more fun, um, and so I decided I would go back. But it was, uh, it was, it was very random, very random. And again, one of the reasons, I, you know, I ended up, I ended up in a swamp. Um, the other place was up in the mountains, and it was much more beautiful and much fresher air, no mosquitoes. And Gapwin was—it's in a swamp. There's mosquitoes. There's, you know, there's leeches. It's, it's, it's pretty not. It's not very nice. But I liked the people and I thought that the language situation was very, very, very interesting, which it turned out to be as well. Um, so that's how I ended up there.
0: You know, I do want to talk about the language part of Death in the Rainforest, not just the, the violence part. But um, before we move forward, since you've been talking about how unfun it is to live in a rainforest, what, one of the things that I've noticed about the um, book is I can imagine a potential critic of the book saying, oh, this book is very unflattering in its portrayal of, of the country and um, the, the, the food. And you mentioned National Geographic earlier. I can imagine some critics saying, oh, there's so many familiar tropes of exoticism and um, you know, the, the, the disgusting food and the terrible leeches and all that kind of stuff. How would you respond to a, a critic who says there's a lot of stereotypes, often Western negative stereotypes in the book?
1: I would say that I hope that the critic actually reads the book, because <laughs> I, I I think that, I, I mean, I, I recognize all of those stereotypes, and I recognize them in the explorer literature. Mm. Um, you know, the, the journalists who spend, you know, three, three, four days going through Papua New Guinea or going to a jungle and writing about it. I recognize that. But I would hope, that anyone who would would immediately jump up with that kind of criticism actually contextualizes. Because again, this book is written for a larger audience. It's not written for professional anthropologists. It's written for, as you began by saying, it's written for students, You know, first-year students who want to know what anthropologists do and what anthropology is. It's written for an audience who is interested in cultures that are quite exotic. I mean, they're exotic for people who sit in, you know, wherever they sit in, you know, mid, midtown America or in midtown Stockholm or wherever you're talking. I mean, you know, these places are not everyday places and they're interested, they're curious. And I think that I tried to be as honest, I say explicitly in the beginning of the book that this book is a more honest take on my, my life in the village than the last one I wrote. And I think that, of course, if you're going to be honest, then you can open yourself to criticism that you're being, um, you're being negative, you're being, um, I guess, you know, stereotypical would be a possible criticism, although I have a hard time seeing how anything I write is stereotypical other than to, um, you know, play into people's stupid stereotypes. If I say that the food, I didn't like the food, I didn't like the food. I thought it was actually kind of gross. And I could have not said that. But you know why would I not say it? It seems to me. Um, so that's that's my response to that. I, I, as I say, I would hope that anyone who who would would come with that criticism would read the whole book and not just pick out what might be out of context, seen as um, you know negative or however you want to phrase it. I mean, I do have a chapter there on the, on the food, which several people have commented on, and I, I suppose I could have taken it out. Um, but I, I personally think it's a good chapter. I think it's a uh, it, it describes my response to the food, and you know that was my response. I, I I I could disguise it, I could hide it, I could not have it in. But I I think that it invites people. I would hope, let me put it that way. I would hope that it invites people to identify with the with the author of a book. And one thing I learned, I should say. By writing this book is that my editor at at Algonquin, who was an incredible, fabulous editor, she said to me that readers need somebody to identify with. When I first gave the manuscript for the book, I was in it much, 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 much less than I am now. And she prompted me, she prodded me to put myself in the book much more than I actually felt comfortable being in the book um, by saying that, you know, a reader needs to have somebody to identify with. And you know, the reader could identify against the the, the 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 author, but at least there's an identification possible. And I learned through working with her that that's, that's actually a very effective uh, narrative technique, which we're not really encouraged to do when we write anthropological work, because there we can insert ourselves at various you know, key points, but it's not supposed to be about us, which I agree with. I don't think anthropology should be about us, but I think to communicate to a broader audience, which anthropologists are continually banging on about how we need to do, I think that we have to take the risk that somebody will, you know, somebody will, will read my book and say, oh, that's such a stereotypical portrayal. Yeah, well, all right, fine. But Well, this
0: I mean, this is a book where you do take a lot of risks. And, I mean, you describe things happening to you that should never have to happen to anyone and that many people would not take the chance of being vulnerable and um and and describe so i think uh it's it's pretty remarkable i think you should be congratulated for being so willing to be so frank and candid about these parts of your life which sound like they were uh, very difficult and um you know i've also had experiences of violence in papua new guinea and i do not write books about them maybe someday but i'm
1: it's not something I'm ready to talk about yet. So, no, and I mean, and it's not about insulting anyone. It's not about. I mean, I I will have been I, this this book will have been completely. Unsuccessful. If anybody reads it and at the end of it feels sorry for the people I write about, mm. pities them. I mean, I want to to evoke a sense of compassion, not in a not in a charitable, oh, you're, I feel so sorry for them, sense of compassion, but a sense of connection and engagement that these people share our world. And I think that that's also one of the reasons why I was was frank about my impressions because I didn't want to portray people as saintly or as you know, something that was patently false. I mean, these are complicated people and they're living in a very, in many ways, dysfunctional place, which is in many senses caused by colonialism, caused by Christianity, caused by capitalism. And I, that's what I want people to get out of the book, that these people are enmeshed in a, in, 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 in a network, in a system that they don't control. And I think that to not highlight the fact that a lot of, you know, some of their lives is, are not are not happy. It's not all happy. Um, and my encounter with them was not all happy. I think that to, to actually put that forward and to say that, is to is, is is to invite people to engage with them as you know as adults and not portray them patronizingly or condescendingly mm. as innocent natives that you know just have things happen to them and they're victims and I you know I don't I'm not interested in that and I don't think they would be either.
0: you know you you said um, that you don't portray them as angels. you also don't portray them as devils. and I, I think you're doing one of the things that many of us uh, who study this country, or all anthropologists should try to do, which is try to acknowledge, frankly, the problems of the places that they live, while also still trying to see the value of the people and the places where they do research. And it's one of the things that's so poignant about the book that is that on the one hand, a lot of negative things have happened to you and other people there. But on the other hand, as you say, you, you like the people, you chose them over the scenery, like you clearly have a, a strong commitment to this place. And and you just enjoy spending time with the people there.
1: Exactly. I hope that comes across. I really hope that comes across. Um, because as I say at the end of the book, it's like, I do think I, I you know, I, I, we, there's a, there's, a, you know, this, this whole idea that we should only talk about ourselves, that we shouldn't, we shouldn't speak for anybody else, which is increasingly I'm finding to my great dismay coming into anthropology. Um, which means that anthropology, as a, as a discipline, will be completely valueless, and we should all pack our bags and go home. But I think that I, you know, I, I really believe that we have a responsibility to engage with people who are very different from ourselves, and I really believe that that we need to, um, you know, w- we need to see people. In their complexity, we can't just portray them as as victims. We can't just portray them as, you know, the victims of neoliberalism, the victims of, of capitalism. They're they're real people. They have, you know, they have they're 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 happy people. They're sad people. They're violent people. They're nonviolent people. And that, to me, is when anthropologists can do that. Um, then we're successful.
0: You know, I should say I anticipate that one of the reactions that you're going to get. Is that people don't have your sense of humor, and so they're not going to appreciate things about Gapun that you appreciate. Like you love the swearing, and I love the swearing. Yeah, and you uh, even in your first book um, from the early '90s, you know, many of us who read it, the swearing was the best part. These long I, poetic <laughs> epithets. Yeah, you know. I, I, in graduate school, we call each other, you know, black bogus bastard, because that was one of the, <laughs> you know, one of the famous lines. So, um, But but I think maybe, you know, you have a kind of a gimlet eye and, and a wicked sense of irreverence. And I think that maybe some of the more puritanical or straight-laced people, which might be, I kind of feel like in some sense, a lot of anthropology, especially in the mainland U.S., is, is getting a bit more straight-laced. Um, Well, they'll have have trouble appreciating that, I think.
1: Again, I mean, you know, all I can, you know, again, if you don't have a sense of humor, I don't think that you're, you know, you're necessarily a very good anthropologist. Um, Because I think a lot of what I mean, a lot of what gets me through difficult periods of fieldwork, and I've had quite a few every place I've worked, is that I like, you know, I like to laugh. I like people who make me laugh. Mm. And I want to be able to convey the, the, you know, that the, the people do laugh and that they can be laughed at without necessarily being insulted and, you know, and, and, and find it offensive, that they, they like to, people like to laugh at one another. And I, I like, I, I I think there's a lot of humor. I think there's a lot of humor in Gapun. They laugh all the time. Uh, people laugh a lot. They laugh at each other. They laugh at situations I and mean, they're not these kinds of straight-laced natives, which one can easily get the impression of, especially when one reads the old classic monographs. I mean, if you think of, you know, Malinowski, um, you know, I don't really get the sense that Trobriand Islanders laugh a lot, but I'm sure they do. Um, I think Margaret Mead is different there, because there I, get the, I get the sense that someone's had quite a good sense of humor. Um, and that could be because she had a good sense of humor. I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean,
0: my experience in Milne Bay and talking to ethnographers of that area is that it's not a place where there's a lot of the just the raucous, very earthy, you know, vernacular kind of culture the way that you talk about. So,
1: yeah, yeah. and again, I mean, as an, for an anthropologist, to sort of filter all that out somehow. Um, you know, in, a, in for some kind of misguided sense that we're protecting people from something, I think it's a mistake. I, I I don't agree with it.
0: Now, many people who don't study Papua New Guinea but who are involved in anthropology will know Papua New Guinea through the work of Marilyn Strathern, and to a, a in a slightly different way, maybe Roy Wagner. And um, uh, Marilyn describes Papua New Guineans as being sort of individual or they have these very exotic theories of personality and their, their selves are split and everything like this. But you, you present a very individualistic portrait of Gapuners that, that they, they tend to really value their autonomy and they're encouraged to be self-reliant. What, what should people who have read some of that Strathern? How, how would you reconcile that with your, with your portrayal? It just seems a little bit different.
1: I don't really know what to do with that, because I think that Marilyn Strathairn's understanding of Papua New Guinea is basic, is is very heavily, um, and I'm sure she would be the first to agree, it's very heavily based on her experience in the highlands. Now, again, Papua New Guinea is a big country. There's lots of different cultures. They're not all the same. It's not all the same. I don't know the extent to... And also Marilyn Strathairn is writing in a very abstract way. I mean, I don't think that she actually... You know, anywhere says that people see themselves as individuals. It's an that's an anthropologist's understanding of Papua New Guinea's sociality. Um, and what I'm what I see in in, in Gapun is certainly people are connected to one another. That's what connects people. I mean, sorcery is a great connector
0: because mm-hmm. you know, again, if
1: I do something, then I don't have to die, but maybe my nephew will die. Or my, my, you know, my, my sister will die. So again, we're all connected in that way. And my actions will influence other people. Often in ways, or sometimes in ways that go against their own self interests, and I have an example in the book of you know if somebody steals if somebody steals you know a, a, a battery that somebody managed to buy somewhere I steal a battery and I'm caught I can say that it what you know I did it but it wasn't me who it somebody made me do it and that is a perfectly acceptable excuse in in Gapun, which again ties to this notion of individuality it ties to this notion that we're we're the we're the conduits of action but we're not the agents of action so in that sense i think that it's you know it's a, it's it, it's very similar uh, but again what i saw in Gapwin from the very start was not only how people are incredibly incredibly individualistic they really are it's all about themselves but they're socialized to be that way yeah so so babies are continually being socialized to, it's like it's not yours it's mine whose is it and, you know, I, I think that even, even people who work in, in the highlands, I'm thinking of Bambi Schefflin's work, uh, for example, she writes about that, how it's always it's like, who, you, who's, who's, who does this belong to? That is a crucial fact of anything to know in order to do anything with it, in order to use it, in order to steal it, in order to eat it, in order to throw it away. You have to know that. So there's, there's an ownership thing that, that, that really, Socializes people into into standing up for their rights and the you know the crosses that you mentioned this this swearing it's all about women saying this was mine you destroyed it you screwed with it I'm you know I'm pissed off at you and I'm now abusing you for it so again it's this, it's it's a in this network of of connectedness individuals are continually being made but I think that the I think the way to reconcile is to understand that. The individuals are—they're not—they're not—you know—they're not American individuals. They're not um, Swedish individuals. They're individuals in, that, that emerge against a background of um, of networks that that I think that Marilyn Stafleer does a fantastic job of describing.
0: Yeah, they're they're individuals, but they're very permeable. They're not buffered. Sort of—that's like, a good
1: way of putting it. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. They're permeable. Exactly. They're—I mean—I'm continu- they are continually being be impressed upon by other people's wills, by their desires, by their, you know, everything. So, so, yes, I've had very confusing conversations when people steal things from me um, in the village, young men. It's like, why did you take my soap? Um, It's your fault, Don. You made me steal it. Well, actually, yes, because I asked you for it and you didn't give it to me. Mm -hmm. And so, therefore, you made me steal it. Because um, that's the only soap I have. <laughs> you know, I didn't give it to you because I've passed out like fourteen soaps, and that's the one I have left. That's why I didn't give it to you. But you know, that's so. Again, this is. This, I find this very curious. I find it very. Um again I find I, I, I see humor in it, but I also see very this is way this is how people die. I mean, you always die because somebody did something to you and it doesn't have to be you who did it. Somebody else did it, and you're dying for that person's wrongs. Yeah. So but again, you're the one who dies. Nobody else. You know, so like that's where the individual emerges. Is again, and this is, I think, one of Marilyn Strathern's points: is that the individual emerges out of relationships, and one sees it very, very clearly in Gapun. I think the tonality. Or the tenor of individualism is perhaps different in the Sepik um, and in the Highlands, but I do think that the this the sense that we're all connected and that we all influence one another in ways that we can't control and don't understand is is something that is very Papua New Guinean.
0: The the I think one of the upsides of, of it for some people is that it prevents accumulation and it prevents centralization of power, but then. The downside of it is that it, it prevents organization or anything getting done.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, Gapun's a could be a case study for that. There, there was when I was there in two thousand and fourteen. There were discussions about putting a tower, a telecom tower, on the mountain where the villagers used to live. This is the highest point in the Lower Seepik. Perfect place for a telecom tower. The villagers could not agree on who owned the land, and villagers were saying that if you put that there, we're going to cut it down. And so eventually, the telecom company went somewhere else. So the villagers ended up with zero, with nothing. So again, this is uh, this is I mean, this is sort of what I like about Papua New Guineans. They don't they they don't take a lot of shit, um, but it does it does prevent the thing the very things that they want, which is you know money and capital coming into their village, which I'm. Actually, quite happy about because I realize that money and capital would just basically destroy them. But that's my view. They ha- they would disagree.
0: Yeah, and it's it sounds like you're also saying that their connection to the world is one of disconnection. So in some sense, they're they're already suffering from the effects of those things being out there, but them not having them. Exactly,
1: exactly, and that I think is 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 part of their whole epistemology is that they realize these things are out there and they want them and they don't know how to get them. And they really, really are trying. Um, you know, and that's one of the things that, that has, it's, it's the nerve as it were of my entire 30 years working in the village is that they identified me as somebody who was dead and they really, you know, and I, I have a chapter there when I realize, you know, they told me this in 1985 and when I went back in 19, when I was there in 2009, 2009, I thought, well, you know, because I hadn't been there basically for 15 years. And I thought, well, surely they don't still think this. And I've got a chapter in the book which basically proved to me that they thought exactly that. Um, and again, they want these things and they want them, but they have no means of getting them. And so they get, they, they, you know, they've interpreted Christianity in the way that they, they've interpreted it, which is not an unreasonable interpretation. Um, they've interpreted capitalism in the way they've interpreted it, which, again, given their incredibly limited exposure to it, is not unreasonable. And they, you know, they, they, they want it, but they can't, they don't know how to get it. And into that is the mix that anybody who stands out? Anybody who stands up. The tall poppy is immediately cut down, and that I think is the Melanesian culture that you you know we're all in this together, and therefore if you stand up and stand out, we're gonna we're gonna get you.
0: Mm. And uh, one of the sort of melancholy dimensions of this melancholy situation is the um, language death that you also include in the title. Can you tell me a little bit about? what it's like to to watch this language die and it seems like one of the sort of contrarian thing themes in this book in addition to some of the other contrarian ones we might have talked about <laughs> is is your um is your you don't have the standard take on language death that there are these precious languages that have to be preserved and then when they die the world loses a, a precious bit of diversity that's Not exactly what you're saying. Is that right?
1: It's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm saying. And I have deep respect for linguists who work with endangered languages. I I really do. Um, But I think that there are, there's many, many linguists who work with endangered languages these days go for the biodiversity trope that, you know, languages are like endangered species. So, you know, languages are like condors. Languages are like pandas. Languages are like, I don't know whatever other species is now is now on its way out. Languages are like that, and that is all. I've always felt found that a very difficult metaphor, not because I don't appreciate its potential rhetorical power, because it does have some power, but I think it's because it ignores the people who speak the languages, and I think that that kind of metaphorical. Um, you know, it's like we, we should look to the natural world as ways of understanding language. I think that's exactly the place, the natural world is exactly the place we should not be looking to understand a phenomenon like language death. We should be looking at things like political, you know, the fate of political parties, the fate of religious movements, we should look to the social world to understand language death because languages die because people stop speaking them. And so the question is, how do they die? You know, what, what, what are the dynamics that produce a population of people that stop speaking their language for, for you know, various, various reasons? So, yeah, I, I, I argue in the book against that, um, you know, very worthy um, metaphor, but I don't think it helps us. And I think it also risks being very condescending because the last people I would want to blame for losing their language or for abandoning their language or for not speaking their language, not, not, not transmitting their language, are the speakers of the language. Because that makes it seem as though they had really, you know, they had a, a choice and they decided not to. And sometimes that does happen. Sometimes people do decide that they're not going to pass on to their, their, their language to their kids. In Gapun, no one has ever made that decision. And that was one of the things that drew me to the village in the first place, that I realized nobody said, we're not going to, we're not going to, we don't like our language. Our language isn't useful. Nobody said that. They all said, we like our language. Their reason is the babies don't want to speak it anymore. It's like, whoa, that is really cool. What is, what is going on there? And so, again, these ideas that languages die, it's all very lamentable. It's all very sad. It is very sad. It's very lamentable. But I think that the risk in focusing on the language as opposed to focusing on the speakers of the language is that we, we, we can be very patronizing and condescending to the speakers of the language.
0: You have this sentence at the end of the book where you say, the speakers didn't abandon Taiap, Taiap abandoned them. That, that was such a powerful sentence and also so unexpected. What did you mean when you wrote that?
1: Well, again, I meant that the, 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 it's it's beyond their control, basically. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that one of the things that we, you know, linguists like to tell us is that we can revitalize, that we can help to revive, and we can, we can. I mean, anyone who wants to have their language revitalized should have all the help that they ask for. If the villagers suddenly decided that they wanted to, you know, use my grammar to help them revive, I would be all for it. I would give them whatever they wanted to to do. But the fact is, is that they don't want that. And I think that to focus on the language, it ignores the processes that have resulted in the end of a language. And when I say that Tayyip has abandoned them, I mean that the the historical processes of colonialism, of Christianity, of capitalism, have actually resulted in a situation that their language is just, it's out of their control, as language always is. Language is always out of individual's control. But this is a situation where I think that the language itself it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's gone. It's, it's going. And that, I mean that in an agentive sense, in in the sense that the language Mm. is going. And I draw a parallel there with the, with the spirits in their rainforest that they, you know, they, uh, my old teacher, Raya, he said to me, he said, you know, it's like we used to see these things in the rainforest. We used to see these elves. We used to see these crocodile spirits and now they're not there anymore. They must have all gone. And that's where I draw parallels to the language. I think maybe you could say the same thing about the language.
0: Wow, that's heavy. Yeah,
1: yeah. But again, I hope that people, when they read the book, I, I mean, you mentioned the humor. I really, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, I mean, it's called the death, and the deaths are never happy events. But I, I, I hope that it's, it's not a total downer. Um, you know, <laughs> you I, should, I, I shouldn't I, have said that. Everyone, have, go read Don's book. Yeah, it's yeah, hilarious. I mean, it's, I mean, I, I, I want, I, I really want to, I want to, I, I want it again. Whether I'm successful or not, as other people, that's what other people can decide. But I really wanted to, 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 to portray the people in the village and my own engagement with the villagers in the village in a way that is, you know, kind of. Not funny, ha, 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 but, but amusing because it is very amusing. But then again, I mean, at the end of the day, it's a very sad story. And I don't, I don't think that I disguise that. I think that I actually make that point um, hopefully quite powerfully by the end of the book.
0: Um, well, I think this is sort of the nature of trying to write about these topics. It gets us back to the first death in the title, not the language death, but the, the biological death you know, on the one hand, you you need to find a way to portray the reality of violence in in Papua New Guinea and sometimes how unfortunately senseless it is. But then on the other hand, how precious life is, you know, how how precious life is such that the death of a single person could be so destructive and so saddening to an entire village. And uh, I think, I think people, when they hear about the downsides, they don't they don't realize how carefully and how how valued life is. Yeah,
1: I mean another another very implicit um, reference to the death in the rainforest is my own death, because of course I was identified as a villager who had died and came back, and so the whole book could be seen as the you know a death of I you know I died as a gap gapuner, I came back as me. And then I wrote a book about them. So there's a there's a kind of a re there's a, there's there's I, I you know I think there's multiple resonances in that death. I mean, whose death are we talking about? What death are we talking about? And death always you know somehow get you have life coming out of death. That's the nature of the game.
0: Yeah well thank you so much for writing it I think um, people will enjoy it and if they find it uh, worthy of discussion and not boring then you will have definitely succeeded
1: <laughs> <laughs> well as I say I hope that I hope that people will assign it in classes I hope that young young students who wonder what anthropology is and what anthropologists do will read it not be bored will get interested and excited um, you know they might not like everything but I hope that they would would it, it will it will incite their curiosity and cause them to learn, read even more anthropology is my big, is my big goal.
0: Yeah. Well, I've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, so I do want to let you go, but can you tell me now that you've done this huge pro- process of your biography, you've completed the grammar and you've completed the popular work. What, what are you working on now?
1: well i 'm actually going back to Papua New Guinea, uh, not to no. Gapun, not to Gapun, but i when I was in the village I was actually in the village in march of this um, of, of this past year to give them a copy of my grammar, and I discovered that the village was basically decimated um, Violence has has resulted in the village which in two thousand and fourteen, which was the last time I spent any length of time in the village. That t- at that time, it consisted of about 200 people. When I went back in March, it consisted of less than 50. The reason for that was because of violence. A, a young man shot another young man in the ear with an arrow, and he died. He, he was killed. This caused the villagers to panic, and they all dispersed. So many of them moved deeper into the rainforest in kin groups. Many of the other ones left Gapun, the, the whole area, and they moved with, in with relatives on the coast. So the village basically doesn't exist anymore. And I understood that the man who shot the arrow was a... A psychopath. I've known him since he was a young boy. I've always identified him as somebody with, with very deep psychological problems. And now that drink and drugs have entered the field, entered the village, um, they exacerbate, of course, his his what I always could see were his were, were his deep problems. When I went back, when I left Gapun, I happened to meet one of the nine psychiatrists who work in the entire country. This is a country, again, of about nine million people. They have nine psychiatrists. And there's one psychiatric hospital in the entire country. And I have now gotten permission to uh, go there and see if I'm going, if I could do fieldwork there. So I'm going to go to Port Moresby and and spend about two weeks in this psychiatric hospital, seeing partly if I could, you know, do could stand to do the fieldwork um, and also just to see if it would be an interesting project. But I would find it a fascinating uh, and again, this arose out of out of happenstance. I realized you know how do people in a place like Kaplan deal with somebody with extreme psychological problems and i'm gonna you know I hope to see how the country itself deals with it, you know segments of its population who it identifies who are identified as having deep you know deep very significant psychological problems. so my next project may be um, in the psychiatric hospital in, in Port Moresby.
0: Good. Well, I look forward to reading that research that there's a whole other realm of medical anthropology in Papua New Guinea that we could get into, but, uh, I do, I do want to let you go. I know I have to get to class. So thank you very much for being on the show and thanks for writing the book. I really enjoyed it.